Katoa, everyone, and welcome on in to the Weekly Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey from the Kaka with co-host Peter Bale in Auckland today. Peter, how are you? I'm very good, and I see Lynn is saying this. I think she's saying we've got a, a good shirt game going on. And oh, I just, I do want to stress that we don't, in fact, call each other and say, I'll meet you at the playground at 10 and you've got to wear your <laughs> denim shirt or your, you know. Yeah. No, but um, if anyone wants to give us uh, spectacular summary shirts. Um, Jesus um we still haven't got the gym yet we can't you know, we can't ask people to give us shirts when we still haven't got the gym from matt martell's brother and we definitely need merch we need yeah. merch, uh the kaka merch and as you suggested just before we came on air we need to all vote for the kaka in the bird of the year and that will be a project for next year yeah well i do i do agree with voting for the kaka Bernard, and i don't mind you using your huge audience power to um win the bird of the year with your namesake but I, I would just put in a word for the variable oyster catcher, which is, you know, uh, uh, Mark Dolder and I have been supporting the variable oyster catcher for a long time because it's, you know, it's unjustifiably ordinary. It's a little bit like, you know, it's a little bit like my car, you know, the one, my, my Renault, um, you know, it's, it's, it's so ordinary, it's perfect. Yeah, it's like a bird that's pretending to be a tuft of grass that just sort of scoots well, along. Beach. The variable oyster catcher. It's elegant. It's black. It's got a gorgeous orange uh, beak. It squawks. It also appears, as far as I know, although I, although I do want to get become a better ornithologist, it um, like the paradise duck. It seems to mate for life. All oh, right. Mm. Yeah. No, it's um. So that when you shoot a paradise duck, according to my brother, the shooter, you when you shoot a paradise duck, duck, you get two for the price of one because the other one comes back to mourn the loss of the one that's been shot so you shoot that one too it's brilliant apparently escalated if that's what you like that discussion escalated yeah speaking of escalation it's been a busy week in our political uh economy we'll go offshore to the various um threats of annihilation mm. in uh and economic um carnage later on but uh this week in our political economy plenty of action around um the economy part with the reserve bank saying we need more unemployment to try and uh, get inflation down and uh also the problem Did they actually say that bernard well what Did they actually say we need to throw poor new zealanders out of jobs yeah adrian wasn't quite that direct but he essentially said uh to achieve lower inflation we are going to need higher unemployment and his argument was that um, currently unemployment is too low, that effectively we're beyond maximum sustainable employment, where we're redlining the car, if you like, and we need to mm -hmm. eat the accelerator. Well, then let's get some bloody training and investment and infrastructure going instead of, you know, pretending that we can we can we can have a you know Nordic tax system with or, or a Nordic lifestyle with with US taxes. It doesn't exist. Yeah, I um, mean, you're right, actually, that he only has the ability to use monetary policy to achieve what he needs. But it's the government itself which determines things like tax policy, housing, infrastructure, training, education. Yeah. And it is, it must be frustrating for him in that he gets blamed for all of this inflation and this uh, trade off with unemployment and, uh, and various shortages. But in the, 
in the long run, it's actually the government and actually voters who decide whether or not we've got the infrastructure investment that's needed. Yeah. And who are those voters, Bernard? They're over, you know, they're boomer bloody house owners, aren't they? Well, it depends on which election you're talking about. And it's worth, I think, segueing into the big report that came out today from the Future of Local Government, which was yeah. a review of governance and funding that the government proposed last year and delayed the report on twice. We got the final draft report out today, which proposed a bunch of things to try and improve the um, or reduce the democratic deficit we've got with local governments, where effectively old white suburban homeowners... Sorry, sorry who? Old, old white suburban homeowners, that's mm -hmm. us, um, uh, completely overwhelm the uh, young renter, renters God for that. Yep. who don't vote and, um, and leave I'm us. I'm feeling a bit David Seymourish today. This is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. He's had a bad week. Um, but uh, their dominance of um, the old Pakeha homeowning suburban types has led to a situation where um, our rates and our taxes aren't high enough for the infrastructure that we need. We're not planning for population growth. Um, we've got all sorts of congestion and infrastructure shortages, which end up with very high um, land residential land prices um, egged on by uh, banks lending into those. Let alone very, very high egg prices because we've been egging them on. Now, look here. Surely Jacinda needs to come back from Antarctica and have a new propose a new deal for New Zealand through um, Grant Grant Robertson and get on with solving these problems. I mean, uh, um, uh, the aptly well, the nicely named David Tripe says here that um, that Adrian Orr suggests that we um, solve our labour shortages by bringing in people, young people from Central Africa. I think that's an excellent idea. I don't think it's going to happen in New Zealand. Yeah, well, but, actually, you know, we have got to we have got to start having a better. I'm sorry, I'm going to sound like. Um, Heather Duplessy Allen here, but you've got to have a start having a better educated workforce, investing in infrastructure and getting the country moving and, and going away from having a no growth agenda. Yeah, um, the, the trouble is I say. everyone loves the idea of um, not having to spend or invest in the infrastructure, but getting the growth anyway. And mm -hmm. from a New Zealand point of view, getting the growth means getting the growth in the uh, value of your residential land um, tax-free and leveraged. And um, we saw this week, not only the Reserve Bank scrambling to try and um, deal with an inflation outbreak in an economy, which is actually a housing market with bits tacked on, but we saw the beneficiaries. Like Pakistan is, a, is, a, is an army with a, is a, is a, is a, you know, has, is a military state with politics tacked on, but carry on, yes. Yeah, no, exactly. And one of its major problems. We're doing our greatest hits today. <laughs> and uh, the bigger, biggest beneficiary of that in terms of a company um, are the banks. And we got ANZ's uh, results out uh, this week. I put together a, a um, analysis of the bank profits and the reserve bank situation which showed that the banks uh, did very well in 2020 and 2021 when the Reserve Bank needed to stimulate the economy by using the wealth effect in housing mm. and encourage the banks to get out there and lend like crazy, which they did. And now they're reaping the profits from that growth in lending into mortgages. Good. Same time as higher interest rates are expanding their net interest. Yeah, and, we always, and we always know that the that that, you know, fantastic, it's like fiscal drag with banks. That the you know the margin the margin just grows on the way up and takes an incredibly long time to reduce on the way down. 
Yeah, the numbers are huge. Um, essentially, the banks are at the point now of producing around about $8 billion per year in profit. And well, that's uh, excellent for those of us who are, you know, shareholders in the banks, uh, pension funds and everything. It's true, uh, although a lot of those dividends go to Australia. I'm sure, some of our PQs might be held by those banks. Um, but uh, I've proposed in my piece earlier today that uh, we have a windfall tax on bank profits. Oh, which sounds Jesus Christ. Next, you'll be proposing that oil companies get taxed. Did you see that you, that that Shell made eight billion eight billion pounds, and then said, "Well, because we're investing in the North Sea, we actually didn't make any any profit in the UK, so no, we don't have to pay any of the windfall tax in the UK because it was we were, they were allowed to offset it by drilling more." Yeah, um, this this is part of the problem, I suppose, that um, you're creating some brand new, fantastic jobs for uh, accountants and yeah. taxpayers to get around this. But it's pretty hard for the banks to do this because they are reliant on the government itself for a license. But to what would a windfall on tax and banks? Oh, I mind you, I suppose it stops the money going to Australia. Good, excellent idea, Bernard. Do yeah. it. And actually, the banks are used to this because they actually have a windfall uh, profit tax in Australia from the Australian government. So it's not like they can. Um, oh, this is outrageous, those socialists mm. punishing us when actually the socialists in Australia are already punishing them. So um, you could yeah, get... Yeah, well, it makes sense. How much, how much could you raise from it, do you think, Bernard? Well, a couple of billion dollars at the very least. And that's not nothing. That would be enough to pay for some significant help for those people who've lost out during COVID. 2020 and 2021 was awful for people who were renters on low incomes and they didn't get the benefits of all the asset price inflation. Mm -hmm. They've got the pain from uh, increasing fuel and food prices. And um, there are plenty of ways in which the government could kill two birds with one stone here, give the Reserve Bank some help, reduce inflation and prices actually by removing fees. What would it do to the New Zealand dollar, do you think? Well, actually, um, by not having the Reserve Bank put put up uh, the official cash rate and instead mm. having the government do the inflation heavy lifting by actually cutting its own prices. And remember, there's plenty of them, apart mm. from airfares from New Zealand and a whole bunch of electricity company profits. Uh, you've also got um, uh, GST, which you could have a temporary reduction of. You could Good Lord. You could reduce GST. Back to where it should be at 12 and a half percent where it was introduced. Was it, was it, oh no, it was, it was 10 percent when it was introduced, wasn't it? 10 percent uh, in 1980. Which is about where it should be. It's regressive, yeah. By 1989, it was up to 12 and a half. And then John Key did the big tax switch in 2010, which took it mm. to 15 percent. Um, you could do a bit of a tax switch there, a windfall uh, profit tax on banks um, in exchange for a cut in GST from 15% to 12 Is there any likelihood of it happening? Um, the government has been very careful not to break the um, very special broad-based low rate nature of GST that we have here. We've got the purest, most beautiful form of GST in the we world. We do. We do. It's fantastic. No, and I, and I like, we've discussed this before, I'm sure, but I remember when, you know, it was introduced, I was in the, in the gallery reporting on it, I think our, our dear friend Patrick Smelly was actually at Roger's side, you know, introducing it, which he keeps very well, you know, discreet about now. But, you know, it is it is a purist system and it's and it stood the test of time, but possibly it needs to be recalibrated. So I would I, let's hope that Jacinda has been enjoying those few days in Shackleton, Shackleton's in Shackleton's realm. Um, reading Escape from Elephant Island, which I, I know I noticed she was reading on the plane on the Hercules on the way down. 
uh, and comes back and actually, because this, this requires a bit of flair and imagination. Not quite the flair that uh, Liz Truss showed, but, you know. No, no, it's the sort of flair you don't want to have. That's flare out, actually. That's um, flame out and flare out. Um, I don't think she's going to come back with any radical ideas, uh, but something like that would um, uh, certainly change the debate because so far the... Uh, the effort is really going on to the Reserve Bank to reduce demand to, tr to catch up with the supply shocks we've had. Mm. Actually, you know, in terms of um, prices, which actually have nothing much to do with demand and supply, they are set by uh, governments. These are taxes, charges, fees, and of course, the various network monopolies that the government still owns. Um, and remember, one of the biggest contributors to the rise and the surprisingly high inflation number that we had in the September quarter was domestic airfares, which yeah. was, and for anyone who's tried to which fly... extortionate, yeah. It's outrageous. It's easier to go overseas. Now, Bernard, why can't you, if if um, if um, Mrs. Ms. Much Mackay from um, TVMZ is advising uh, Chris Luxon, maybe maybe you and I could advise Jacinda and, and Grant to come back, you know, be radical, fix the infrastructure, open up the immigration, and get on with some of this stuff. Uh, yeah, no, I'd be happy to do I mean, it. He's, I mean, Luxon's having to keep, keep, hold down a second job at bloody McDonald's. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure he actually um, did that job uh, for long or very well, but certainly, um, and interestingly, uh, the question is whether or not he'd join the union and get himself a fair pay agreement, which um, finally was passed through Parliament. Um, no, he'd be, he'd, he'd, be go, you know, he'd be one of those managers who'd, who'd spend a, you know, an hour and a half a day, an hour and a half a month on the check out to um to sort of you know get an idea of how his workers go and and you know that would be it yeah and i did notice the other day by the way that he 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 you know he still can't help himself saying by the way i used to run in new zealand yeah he needs to drop that i think and um, there's some free advice from me um but uh, also um he could be a an uber driver and uh, as we learned in the employment court this week, uh, he could um, then be classified as an employee of Uber. Yeah, which is ridiculous. It's not what the gig economy is all about, Bernard. Well, I mean, when there's only one taxi... Um... Well, there's only one podcast, you know. I'm still on the gig economy myself, as we both know. <laughs> we'll have to bring you on as an employee rather than a mm, economy. Mm. Um, so but, that... but just, is, is just, can we, can we get, just, is Jacinda the first person, first world leader to go to... Um, Antarctica? No, um, not that I I can recall. It's a good question, actually, but I don't. I think there have others been others there, including a few New Zealand and Australian prime ministers. Oh, really? As well. Oh, speaking of Antarctica, here's Robert. Ah, <laughs> he's the closest. Yeah, exactly. He's the closest. I didn't realise I was that cool, Peter. Well, very good. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, it's not that cold. Yeah, yeah. You are, um, in fact, you're, you're our you're our resident ice shop. Yeah. Coming to us now. A lot of students would agree with that. I'm known as Dr. Killjoy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm just going to tweet um, that for, to 800 million people. But yeah, carry on. That's fine. Um, You'll get and, a lot of here. Really here. Yeah, yeah. Antarctica is one of these um, incredibly strategic places now that um, large powers fight over and try to stick their satellites over. Uh, and the Prime Minister went down there um, this week, uh, eventually, after a couple of, or one false attempt, um, to raise some of these um, these issues around uh, uh, who controls those resources and mm. how they're managed and that sort of thing. Very interesting. Now, one of the big players in Antarctica over the years has been Russia. 
which has oh, its nice segue, which has its own um, share of um, Arctic um, expertise. Uh, Robert, what did you make of um, the various pieces of news this week out of Russia with uh, uh, Vladimir Putin? Uh, having a good old rant, um, but appearing to maybe reach out a bit uh, and say, "How about a deal, guys?" Yeah, but it's it's a bit more more of the same, I think, Bernard. It, it, it's it was a real rant, wasn't it? It was a parallel universe, um, uh, a military, a special military operation which was supposed to last for five days is still going into eight months now. His army has lost in Kiev, um, Kharkiv um Izium and is about to lose in Kherson it looks like and he has no regrets and he's lost the Russian army's lost somewhere in excess of 60,000 troops mm. and uh yeah I mean it's it's an extraordinary parallel universe that Mr Putin lives in and mind you I suppose all authoritarian leaders cannot admit mistakes by definition yeah. because they've got a monopoly of power and it's fatal for them to say they've made a mistake i suppose but he made he threw out a few sort of bones to the west he said that he didn't consider the west russia's enemies when he clearly does and he's been yeah. at it since 2012 so that's a load of nonsense um liberal democracy and mr putin's dictatorship are incompatible and uh he's very worried about protests breaking out in russia so uh, i i i found it uh, you know, it was extraordinary, really, because it was just a reminder how difficult it would be to reach a diplomatic solution with Mr. Putin. He doesn't yeah. recognize he denied the sovereignty of Ukraine once again. And yet he expects Washington to lean on Ukraine to so that he can secure some sort of territorial gain in Ukraine. And it's just a non-starter, I think. And um, it, it, yeah, so I, I think it was a bit of a rant, but it was he was basically said that the invasion of Ukraine has strengthened Russia's yeah, sovereignty, which, is, which was yeah, well, an extraordinary I was, claim. I was really struck by this, and I'm, I, you know, like a lot of people, I should, you, know, wish, you know, you can't sort of psychoanalyze people from afar. Uh, although we, we we all did that with Trump, of course. But this thing of projection, whether it's with the dirty bomb idea, whether it's you know, did you see this week that um, the Russians decided that um, in fact it was they. <laughs> They were at war against Satanists in yes. in the Ukraine. In Ukraine, I mean, it's very, very, very odd. And you just want, I was thinking today, and to tell me what you think about this, that Sergei Lavrov, the second most cynical man in the world, <laughs> must be just thinking that sitting there, thinking sometime, where where is my parachute? I, you know, I'm an incredibly clever chap. Uh, what's my exit strategy? I. I think he's just too closely wedded to the boss. Mm. There's nowhere for them to go. And they know the boss is desperate. So they, they're prepared. Well, the boss keeps projecting himself as a, a strong man, inverted commas. Mm. I suppose they are reassured by that. If there's the boss shows signs of demoralization, then I think full full blown panic will probably break out. But I, I agree with you. Lavrov to me has gained just as, delusional as putin and his take on the situation mm. at some point reality is going to break out i wonder um robert how this week's um quite scripted 
almost exchange uh, on the dirty bomb issue um, has played out. You had Russia almost projecting to the rest of the world, hey, we're worried about the dirty bomb and we're going to have to respond. Um, and uh, of course, NATO and Ukraine said this is crazy, crazy talk. Uh, although the Russians went and had a chat with India and China as well. Uh, I wonder how that has played out for Russia and whether it had any of the impact that that maybe Vladimir Putin was hoping for. Well, the big disadvantage that the Putin regime has when it makes serious allegations is that its connection between what it said in the past and what it's done has been so huge mm. that when it makes claims like this, it doesn't have too much background credibility. The other thing was um, the Russian representative to the UN Security Council was stopped in his tracks as soon as he was asked to produce evidence to back up these claims. And I think where the evidence is, is the key question. But the Russians are very cynical. They keep talking about, again, talking about the failing West, which they were talking about for the invasion. Mr. Putin repeated that in his speech, by the way. He, he envisaged a new world order um, after the Ukraine conflict. Mm. He may well get a new world. I don't think it'd be quite the order he anticipates, though. But um, it, it seems extraordinary that the Russians still, uh, under Mr. Putin, still persevere in thinking they can just manipulate Western democracies and into doing their bidding. Well, they've had some, you know, they've had, cons I was, oh, yeah. As, as a sort of mind game. And again, it's a little bit like the one about anticipating people's psychology or analyzing it when you don't know them. But imagine where we, where this situation would be were Trump the prime minister, Trump the president. <laughs> yes, extraordinary, isn't it? Of course. I mean, there wouldn't um, be any, he would be talking about high Mars, not sending them. I mean, if well, you think Mr. about Trump that conversation, that Mr. Putin Zelensky. would never have dared to do this had he been president. Mm. Although, having watched Mr. P uh, Mr. Trump cower in Putin's presence in Helsinki, mm, exactly. I think that's very, very unlikely. I think Mr. Trump was one of the reasons that Putin believed the West would not provide any serious re opposition to his invasion of Ukraine. Exactly. But, so he just he just link all he has to do is stay on stay there until twenty twenty four. But there has been a few little cracks that's developed here and there in the coalition in the West. Oh, yeah. Last week, we had the Republicans, who at the moment seem to be on track to win potentially both the House and the Senate in the midterms in a couple of weeks. Um, we had the Republicans say, well, we'll have to be careful about how much stuff we send to Ukraine. And then this weird sort of progressive left group within the Democratic yeah. Congressional Caucus, who sent this letter saying to, to to Biden, saying, "Hey, it's about time we negotiated with, with uh, with Russia." And then after they sent it, and the immediate outrage came and landed on their heads, they said, "Oh, well, we didn't really mean to send that. Uh, it was in the fax machine." It was a staffer. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> and um, but uh, do do you think that the midterms um, could change this equation and maybe um, blow the wind in Putin's favour towards some sort of negotiated um, result. I don't think so, Peter. Um, I Bernard. think the Biden I administration... Mean, he's, I know I've got a fabulous shirt on too, but he's Bernard. Sorry, sorry I beg your pardon. Long, long day. Right. Um, Bernard and Peter. I, I don't think so, um, because I think Biden has shown no signs of backing down over this. And I, although he'd be disappointed, and I think he will be disappointed by the midterms, 
if you look at previous presidents in this situation, it doesn't necessarily deflect them from what they considered to be their core business. I think Biden believes that Putin will not survive much more than the next six months. And if that is true, if I mean, if you if you listen to people like uh, uh, the Secretary of Defense and the National Security Advisor, many of them are saying what we've discussed before, that Putin can't fight a long war. And there are serious signs of strain, and there have been for some time on the Russian side. Mm. I mean, they fired 4,500 missiles since February, and they're losing ground in the east of the country. And they haven't got an infinite supply of missiles. So, they're having to, um, and they're expensive. To the so point where- I think that Biden's view would be, okay, I'll, t- I'll, I'll take that, you know, I'll take that loss, but I think my strategy will work. And as we've discussed before, I think the, the Biden strategy is to sort of pluck one feather at a time from the Russian eagle at a point where oh, oh. the Russian Jesus, eagle Robert, won't be able to fly. Sorry, and Mr. Putin will be disposed. You know, I think Putin will be forced. Uh, there are some commentators, by the way, who believe that the loss of Kherson could undermine mm-hmm could result in Putin being unseated. I mean, as we all know, with authoritarian regimes, these things are not advertised in advance. No one says, look, Putin, if you lose Kherson, we're going to kick you out. No one's going to say that. But there were some interesting manoeuvres in Moscow in the last 24 hours against a possible coup with tanks uh, in the street doing exercises. So, again, may mean nothing. But it seems to me that Biden will take the view that his approach is the right one. It's working. And he will believe he'll have the last word on this issue, perhaps in the the the, the uh, presidential election. And the other good news that's um, happening at the moment is that the uh, gas prices in Europe have come down sharply, more than 60% from their peaks. So going into winter, it looks like the Germans have filled up the tanks and uh, the prices are starting to drop uh, in part because the European Union has taken a bunch of um, less than market friendly uh, uh, approaches to getting those prices down, but it's certainly going to certainly going to help there. And take some of the you know political pressure off that Western alliance going into the mm. winter. Just um just finally uh uh Robert Well you think it's final. Ah <laughs> go ahead. For me at least. Um oh by the way we'll have to send you one of our flowery shirts, Robert. Oh okay. <laughs> be great. Yeah. Um just on Iran. I'm having I'm having the suede elbow patches attached to it as we ah, speak. Good, good. Yes. No, um, just on Iran, uh, Robert, uh, it's been um, yet another week of uh, mm. constant and gr- ever-growing, it seems, uh, protests, quite brazen. And, of course, we had our own little um, uh, skirmish here where yeah. we discovered it, apparently. Skirmish that- with Topher Richwhite? Jesus yeah. Christ. We had a couple of influences, uh, apparently. Can uh, I say influences? But you were yeah. an influencer. They are just a bunch of fucking instagram prats what did what did you think of uh, this robert this this idea that um we held back apparently from criticizing iran until these people were out i think that's plausible because apparently they were detained in june i believe about four months ago and i thought the prime minister was incredibly reticent and the foreign minister about the situation in iran given their you know both of them have quite strong views about the sort of thing that's happening uh, mm. in Iran. Um, 
protests led by women against a pretty repressive regime over the hijab. Um, I expected the prime minister would have said something and I was struck. I didn't know, of course, that this Kiwi couple, um, Christopher Rich White, White is it? And um, uh, Bridget Thackeray were being detained. They're, they're travel bloggers, I believe. And yeah, that's a better anyway, word than, than uh, I, I do think yeah. that the government did indulge or pursue, probably is a better way of saying it, quiet diplomacy until they were released. And I think we will, <laughs> judging by the travel advisory yesterday, get a much more vocal response now from Wellington. Now they're out. Yeah, yeah, I think I think again, though, um, Robert, this is shows I mean, it's, it's a it's a small uh, incident in a sense, but it did involve real people. Yeah. It seems to me that people underestimate and underrate Nanaya Mahuta's subtlety and ability to manage a difficult situation, let, let alone Jacinda Ardern. So I mean, that, that, well, that was a very, very tricky it was. Uh, situation. And uh, and that seems to me to be a remarkably effective uh, end to it. I mean, we would have been talking about these ghastly pair of um, jeep driving socialites for months if they if they if they you know been detained. It yeah, and I, I, I think it is. It, some, I think I think this question, this issue, brings home the responsibility that politicians have. Exactly. I mean, Thank uh, you. It, it seems to me that th this is a situation where. Uh, people like myself were asking, why isn't the government speaking out about this? And they couldn't actually say, well, actually, it's because two Kiwis are detained because they didn't want to draw attention to it in a way which would result in an extension of their detention. Yeah. So I think they played it about right, actually. Yeah, I, mean, I think so, too. Left me slightly uh, uncomfortable, though, that apparently the media were aware of this as well. Oh, really? Agreed not to publicise it or push it. And in the meantime, the Green Party, who apparently didn't know about this, were rightly asking quite aggressive questions. How come we haven't had the press conference, mm. the press release from the ministers um, calling for um, uh, protesting uh, yeah. about the way women are being treated in Iran? And actually, I was in the press conference where the Prime Minister was asked this, and she straight out said, oh, well, we've done nothing different. And... Um, look, we had, we brought in the ambassador, and this is just as grumpy as we normally are. Mm. When actually that wasn't true, and uh, that that made me feel a bit uncomfortable. Mm. I can see why, you know, purely human thing. You've got a family in distress; their kids are um, stuck in a horrible place, and sure. um, politicians, you know, grandstanding or making loud noises, um, causing grief is horrible. But it may be a little bit. Um, uh, a little bit uncomfortable as a member mm -hmm. of the media. Yeah, yeah. Do, 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 how, Bernard, and maybe um, Robert, how does this work in New Zealand? Does New Zealand have a D-notice system where you can literally, like the UK issues what's called a D-notice, it's very rare, but where, where a topic is, is regarded to be um, off limits for the media, and the media is generally very uh, compliant with that, or is it, is it, is it a bit more subtle? I, and it's just a you know, that's a very area. good question. I, to be quite frank, I don't know the answer to that question. I was assumed that um, the, the prime minister and and the foreign minister, through their staff, make the word known that they'd rather the media don't pursue this story without elaborating. Mm. Uh, I don't know if there's any formal notices that you've just alluded to. Interesting, uh, but it's an interesting question. Yeah, from my understanding, member of the press gallery, I don't think there is a formal legislative process to um, block 
publication in the same way there is in the UK with the D notice. You and I both worked for Reuters in uh, London, um, Peter, and I seem to remember that was some, there was a manual somewhere. Which yeah, said, there is a manual, but it's very rare. Mm, yeah. So interesting one. We'd like to welcome into the Hoon um, and now Jason Young again. Uh, thank you very much, Jason, for being with us. It's fantastic to, to see you. Jason is the director of the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre uh, and obviously closely follows New Zealand's uh, relations with China. Um, so we're really lucky to have both Robert and um, Jason with us today. Jason, um, huge event in China. We've all been watching um, those extraordinary scenes at the, at the Congress on Sunday with Hu Jintao um, shuffled off the stage um, in full view of some cameras maybe not replayed on the Chinese internet, but everyone in the rest of the world seemed to see it. What did you make of um, the way uh, who ended up in complete dominance of the- No, no, uh, she, she ended up in complete dominance. It's all right. Uh, I'll just do an Anne-Marie Anne Brady on you, as she did with um, Marnie Dunlop the other day, who, who described him as Jinping. But anyway, Jason, please go ahead. What do you think? So what is what do you think of Xi's dominance and who's- Exit. Um, well, hi, Bernard. Hi, Peter. Hi, Rob. Nice to see you. Hi, Jason. Um, well, he did well, I think, uh, from his perspective. He certainly uh, took a clean sweep. Um, he not only got another term, um, but he got another term without too much drama, uh, aside from the Hu Jintao um, having to exit a very staged and, and, and highly scripted event. Um, and he also managed to get the standing committee of the Politburo, which is like the cabinet of the political party, uh, stacked with many of his loyalists. So, you know, he will be very pleased. It's just one more step towards um, him consolidating his core leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. Just to put this into perspective, how unusual is it for uh, one of the leaders post Mao to uh, have such complete dominance? These not even factions, they're all... Um, lackey is a stronger word, but certainly <laughs> loyal. Um, what, what, how, how different is that? Well, I think it is quite different. Um, but we should remember that, you know, post Mao, we had Deng Xiaoping, and Deng Xiaoping, he gets a good um, historical rap in the sense that he tried to institutionalize party uh, leadership, tran transfer, institutionalize. Uh, the government uh, even worked on the relationship between the party and the state, um, although it didn't go very far, particularly after 1989. Um, but then under Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, there, were, there was more um, what they would call um, collective leadership, more open debate, particularly under Hu Jintao in the early 2000s. And so you could see that there were different people within the Politburo and within different state organizations who had, had different views. Um, and that was played out uh in the media and also um played out in policy um so this is is quite um unusual for the last couple of decades but certainly not unusual for for a people's republic to be dominated by one leader i wonder too uh, jason um just how much his speech to the congress and uh the way it was interpreted to mean that um xi was more interested in expressing China's uh, strength in the world rather than uh, focusing on in, uh, internal economic growth. How, how true that is, because certainly in the days after uh, what I thought wasn't too much of a surprise, um, the whole financial world went, oh my God, <laughs> this is horrible. And uh, we saw a massive yeah. 
massive falls in the um, stock market. Why do you think it was such a you know shock to a few people? Uh, well, I mean, a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is if you look at the speech, uh, and it's quite a long speech, but it's 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 got a lot of ideology in it. Um, it's it doesn't talk a lot about the market. Uh, it talks a lot about China becoming strong. It talks a lot about the role of the Chinese Communist Party. And it also talks a lot about a very tumultuous international environment um, and how the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party, they need to struggle, um, which is, you know, classic Chinese phraseology. Mm. Um, but but it, it sort of had that heightened sense of siege, men siege mentality uh, with it. Uh, and it didn't have, I mean, it had signals that the economy was important, but it also signaled that security um, and stability were perhaps more important. But I think also, if you look at the makeup of the Politburo, now that uh, Li Keqiang has been, uh, has finished, uh, there's no clear economic reformers mm. uh, in the way that um, we've had since Deng Xiaoping. Um, and so that is, I guess, for some people suggests that perhaps if she has his, has his own policy in terms of the way that the economy would go, if we look at what Xi Jinping's already written about the economy, um, it tends to be a bit more ideological, a bit more focused on domestic growth, a bit more focused on um, uh, things like dual circulation or focusing on um, the state-owned enterprises, et cetera. So that probably worried a lot of people. Jason, it's going to be a more difficult China to deal with, though, isn't it? Because it's, I mean, Bernard's going to ask you in a minute about some of the business aspects of this. But if you look at the dynamism of the, of the Chinese economy from the private sector, you know, and the the not quite detention, but the you know the limit the, the limits put on people like Jack Ma from Alibaba, you know the we're looking at a much much more party directed uh, economy, business, you know working in some kind of perceived national interest. Is, isn't there a risk that China is both going to be much more difficult for New Zealand to deal with, and and also kind of atrophy economically to some extent, that the that the dynamism will be sucked out of it. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that is a risk. I mean, I think it's already there. Right? I think the situation that, that China has in terms of its relations with the United States, increasingly with Europe, with Japan, uh, with South Korea, uh, with parts of Southeast Asia, with Australia, um, and um, I think there's a, a general cooling uh, in terms of the initiatives and engagement between New Zealand and China as well. Mm. Um, it, you know, we could grossly oversimplify it and say that some of that comes about because of China's more assertive and more authoritarian manner. Um, for New Zealand businesses, those that are just trading, you know, I, I don't want to say that trading's not hard because I'm sure it is, but it's kind of more of an arm's length type mm -hmm. uh, relationship. And so agribusiness uh, exporters, I would imagine, will still see the opportunities. They may calculate the risks a bit more, um, but I think in, in, in other areas and, you know, things like the chips bill from the United States have certainly sent a signal that we're seeing this sort of bifurcated tech world um, evolving. And, and, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not trying to say that that's a good idea. Uh, I'm just saying that that's a reality that I think New Zealand businesses will need to live with. That uh, so-called chip choke, uh, the announcement from the US government in the last couple of weeks, really sort of blindsided um, a lot of the... Um, uh, the global supply chains and is quite a tough thing. Could you explain to a broader audience, you know, why this is um, why this is so important? 
Um, well, I'm, I'm no tech expert, uh, but my understanding of it is 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 quite simply that um, collaboration between U.S. companies and Chinese companies in the the high levels of of tech uh, tech sorry not tech <laughs> not a tech expert um, of um, uh, chips is has been prevented, um, and U.S. citizens uh, uh, if they're in China working for a um, uh, a company that works on chips, then they need to either choose their citizenship and go home um, or stay working for that company. So it's basically um, the, the, the United States putting in measures to prevent collaboration at the very highest levels of tech. Um, and that means that China will need to do it on its own, which in a way further reinforces this idea that has been coming through in China for quite some time of um, you know, self-sufficiency, particularly in this high-tech space. And they're investing a lot of money but that's still very far behind the US. Jason, is your is your group affiliated with the? Does does it have a, a sort of John Keyish view on this that um, engagement is what matters? Me? Yeah. Um, well, engagement matters, but I I think um, my interpretation of how John Key has been uh, arguing about engagement lately is I think uh, is not one that I share in the sense that I think engagement is more than just saying. What you think the other side wants to hear uh, but instead actually engaging in a meaningful way uh, where there's some agreement some disagreements and I mean the Tanifar on the dragon well to some extent yeah um, I mean I think that was positioning um, you know sort of the idea of um, a respectful engagement is that you know Peter you and I might not agree on something but we can have a conversation um, and come to some kind of um, mutually agreed outcome. Actually, no, we're going to launch a new a new uh, podcast where we just fight all the time. Um, and James, <laughs> so what, what about you know? We, we, China's reach is is so quite extraordinary. World like that. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you've got certain countries that are now looking at relooking at the Confucian Institutes and Confucius Institutes and so on. And you've had this extraordinary case this week where. Uh, a kind of the, the sort of a Chinese police. I mean, if, if you go, I don't know when you were last in Beijing, but I, you know, you, when you ride a ride a bicycle around Beijing, it's quite amusing. Not amusing. It's a little scary, actually. The incredibly nice, cute, and you know, clearly good neighbourhood watch police stations everywhere, and you think, gosh, that must, you know, that must help them with ram raiding by seventeen-year-olds. Uh, but of course, it's not really what it's there for. Um, and yet, they can extend out to the Chinese diaspora as well. What's all that about? Um, so, uh, my reading of, of that story is uh, that there are there are competing interpretations of what those uh, quote unquote stations were. So the the Chinese response was basically saying that they are um, full jan or, or like service centers for people to yeah um, to to do their licenses or something like that. Um, whereas uh, the concerns that have been raised, uh, particularly in New York and in the Netherlands, were that um, they were um, basically Chinese police being stationed overseas, um, mm. which if we look into uh, some of the overseas diaspora work would be quite concerning um, because of course all citizens and people in, in, in a sovereign jurisdiction um, should only adhere, should only have to adhere to that jurisdiction's rules and regulations and not be somehow managed or overseen. Robert, what do you what do you think about that? I mean I I know you're not 
Anne-Marie Brady, and we probably would have, just to all the people who, who were saying that we're not inviting enough women, we, we did look at Anne-Marie Brady this week and um, decided to go for the thinking man's Anne-Marie Brady, which was Robert, Robert Patman. Um, She's also on the other side of the planet, but anyway. Yeah, exactly. I know, I know, I know, I know why we really did it. But Robert, what do you think about this risk to um, overseas Chinese people? I mean, it's, it's a very alarming kind of, you know, as we know, China, China considers or a party considers overseas Chinese people as, as Chinese, you know, they're, 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 they're Chinese people first and citizens of whatever country they're in second. Well, I, I, I'm clearly not an expert on this, but uh, it seems to me that uh, under, and, you know, Jason correct, can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that under Xi Jinping's leadership, China's become much more sort of China-centric and nationalist and also uh, much more sovereignty orientated in terms of its public declaration. So, you know, I, I think it may be, if you like, uh, there may be outreach to overseas Chinese in a way that didn't exist before. Um, I think Anne-Marie has pointed out that, uh, and again here, I might need some help from Jason, but I think that some time ago, uh, New Zealanders uh, Chinese New Zealanders, that's uh, uh, people of Chinese ethnicity who were born in New Zealand, um, operated a number of media outlets, and these have been taken over over a period of time uh, by the Chinese state. So that Emery was commenting that this reflected a sort of an encroachment in a sense, because many of these media outlets were much more independent than they are now and effectively they reflect much more centralized take but uh, you know perhaps jason could comment on that but in in a sense yeah i mean i do get the sense that since xi jinping's been in power that and i saw nothing in his speech as jason quite rightly said to show that there's any particular change in direction uh, it was a speech that was short on detail there was a lot of emphasis on ideology and discipline um i'm just wondering if his approach will end up in major economic problems but that's just you know it does seem to be that china seems to be very set on building its presence internationally in terms of sovereignty and a very enhanced military um presence so to speak it wants to boost its military he spoke about the need for a world-class military i think and it, it seems to me that some of these things, it seems to me that China has a number of vulnerabilities within its society. And the thing that's taken it to superpower status has been the fact that it has been, if you like, very successful in the world capitalist market and has operated quite successfully. And it seems to me that Xi Jinping is running a risk here of actually undermining the things that have made China quite prominent mm, in the last three or four decades. Just, just to finish off and let Jason go, because I know he's got to go um, shortly. Um, are you more or less hopeful for the future uh, after the events of Congress, Jason, briefly? Um, well, I don't really deal in hope. Uh, in my, <laughs> my, my line of work, um, it's, it's often quite futile. Um, but but to go to Robert's point and, and put those point, two points together, I mean, what we're dealing with is... China has now become a great power. Um, and as you see with all great powers, um, it's extending its power and influence uh, internationally. I'm not trying to say that to scare people because you know all mm. great powers do that. 
the, the real challenge is that the, the political system and some of the sort of ideology and, and some of the institutions like the, you know, you're talking about the Tongjambu, the, the United Front Work Department, that is, is sort of at the heart of that whole foreign interference discussion are, are very different. And so when they meet in a liberal democracy, um, then it's going to take some time to sort out how those two things coexist. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. I know it's late, late at night. I better let you, you get Thanks, off. Jason. Lovely to see you. Appreciate Cheers, it. Jason. Nice to see you, Rob. See you better. Yes. Yeah, no, it's been a, a big old week on the international front and um, not just in politics, but in business as well, Peter, with um, one of our favourite places, uh, maybe not our favourite people, um, Elon Musk. Um, oh, I love Elon Musk. <laughs> now, I mean, I know he can, he can behave like a bit of a dickhead, but you only have to watch the Starlink. Well, I, I love watching the Starlinks go over. I even have an app to allow me to watch the Starlinks go, Starlinks go over. Um, which during lockdown, I, I drove my um, lockdown partners mad by getting up at three and four in the morning to watch them go over. But, you know, the, he has revolutionized all sorts of things. And this week, he paid $44 billion for Twitter and walked into the Twitter headquarters and carrying a, kitchen carrying sink. a sink. Which is, <laughs> he is, you know, like a lot of rich people, he's not quite as funny as he thinks he is. But... <laughs> Uh, what was also interesting is, is well, a tiny bit interesting, is Walter Isaacson was with them. And Walter Isaacson is probably the most, well, apart from uh, Robert Caro, the most noted American biographer, uh, whose biography of, of um, Steve Job is, um, you know, one of, the, one of the most interesting biographies of the last five or six years, 10 years, maybe. And he is writing a biography of, um, of, uh, of uh, Musk. But it's very, you know, Musk has gone and he's fired the chief executive He's fired the uh, chief legal counsel. Uh, he hasn't yet fired the head of product, I don't think, which is the sort of engineering engineering side of Twitter, but you can see that coming. And then he's invited in a whole bunch of Tesla engineers to look at the test, look at the Twitter code. Yeah, I'm not so, so anybody who's been locked out of their Tesla is, is probably going to be locked out of Twitter I'm fairly not, shortly. I'm not sure I'd like the idea of a self-driving Twitter, to be frank. <laughs> yeah, well, and I would, just, I would say 10 days for Trump to come back in. Well, this is very interesting, actually, because uh, this is where we get to some real-world effects. Trump effectively built his his political profile that got him to the presidency and changed the world in all sorts of ways. Well, um, well, let's just say, I think we, I think the 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 jury is out on that in a sense about Twitter. The re the reality is it was the it was the Apprentice that got him there. Yeah, you know, yeah, he certainly. You're fired. Uh, uh, <laughs> He certainly amplified it, and uh, yeah. to see how that uh, turns out. Um, so far, you know, Musk is um, saying all the right things about not um, allowing it be to become a wild westy thing. Although he has in the past said he's a free speech absolutist and that he hated advertising. Mm. Although now he says he likes advertising and he'd like. Yeah, well, he wrote it. Actually, I thought if you if you look, if I could find it somewhere. His um his his statement to advertisers this week about how it's not going to be a hellscape. Uh, I thought was really good. I mean, it's the, the, the critical thing that he may have an opportunity to do here, although I doubt very much whether US regulators are going to allow it to happen the way it happened in China, is he's talking about it becoming, an, he's, you know, he's hinted that he wants to make what's called an, any, an everything app, where you do your banking, your communications, your shopping, and that is very reminiscent of, uh, of Tencent's Weibo uh, and, and the various Alibaba apps. And, you know, that's a very... 
interesting concept. I'm just, I, don't, I very much doubt that um, Western governments, particularly including the United States, are ready to let that happen from a regulatory point of view. If anybody, could, if anybody could make it happen, it's probably him, but I doubt that's going to happen. The key with that is to, is to connect it up with the financial system. Correct. And what happened um, in China with uh, WeChat, which became WePay, and Ali, Alibaba became Alipay. Mm. China's government has effectively uh, connected up its payment system and its uh, financial system with those apps uh, in a very controlled way. And it's interesting, the last couple of years, the government sensing that this is actually an alternative power source mm. <laughs> to have the, those big tech companies effectively in control of your financial system uh, have cracked down on them. Um, and it's interesting, India, for example, there's a very good paper out from the IMF this week, India has completely transformed its financial um, mm. transaction system by giving everyone biometric identifications and allowed them to use their mobile phones to pay for things. So these days, it's easier to buy something on the streets of India with effectively your mobile phone than it is in a dairy. Yeah, and I just, I just, I think you're absolutely right. And of course, I'm just, I just have to stop for a minute because I need to write a check and post it to someone in the United States because <laughs> yeah, the United States has the shittiest banking system in the entire world. So, you know, we, we, we lionize the United States as the center of competition, but it's actually a center of, um, of regulatory capture and, and uh, oligopolies. Robert, let, let me ask you, since you're still there, which is lovely to see you there, I was just telling somebody that one of the main reasons we never have any women is because we love you. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and of course, it's not true. We do have many women uh, on, sh on the show. I mean, I don't mean that in a rude way. It's a very interesting dilemma and you must look at this academically, at least I hope you do, the tension between elected political officials, elected political systems, and the power wielded by corporations. Where do you, where do you see that in an academic sense? I mean, you've got, you know, who is the more powerful? Well, I, I think <clears throat> globalization, this process of this, this revolution in digital and communications technology that we've seen since the early 80s, which has gathered momentum and has played a part in our conversation today. In a sense, this, the pace of change is accelerating all the time, I think. And that presents a real legislative challenge for governments, because yeah. I think, in a sense, the government's the legislative framework has got left behind to some degree. And we've seen attempts like the, the Christchurch call with respect to online extremes to try to... yeah create an environment where there's a little bit more regulation. Um, but I, I think it is a, a very real problem. And um, yeah, I mean, in, in a sense. Um, is it a problem? Is it actually a problem though, Robert? Or is it just that we've got to get used to the idea that corporations are as powerful as governments? No, I think they definitely are. If you look at the, the most wealthy, I think the most wealthy entities in the international arena, if you look at them, there's a hundred of them uh, and about 48 of them in fact, more than 48, uh, about 52, I think, are actually um, non-state actors, namely mm. multinational corporations. So uh, they have much bigger uh, wealth than, for example, a, a relatively small country like New Zealand. So these are really big players, Google, mm. Apple, and, you know, so the, they really have clout, but we don't have too much accountability. In fact, I could, we, we've seen cases when there's been confrontations between sovereign states and some of these really big players, mm. it's often the sovereign states that come off worse. So there was a case under the Scott Morrison government with, in Australia, which got into a bit of a, a spat with uh, uh, 
Facebook, Facebook wasn't it? Mm. And uh, they basically backed down. Uh, there's one case, I think, where the EU, which has got quite a lot of collective weight when it wants to exercise it, did impose a fine on Google. Um, but it is something I think sovereign states are, at some point are going to have to think hard about because, it, you know, in a sense, these are incredibly powerful entities. And at the moment, there's very little accountability for what they do. Mm. And um, in, in a sense, if you want, you do need a legal framework for free and fair competition. Yeah. Because I'm going to ask you a question about this, and then I'm going to step in and, 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 and question Bernard's socialist tendencies. Good, good. No, I was just going to say, without... Uh, without some sort of regulatory framework, the big players just pick off the very efficient and competitive small ones yeah. and they buy them out. So I'm, I'm simplifying enormously, but I, I do think some sort of regulatory framework ultimately makes, you know, free and fair competition uh, much more of a reality than the sort of free for all where the biggest take what they want and uh, the smallest have to suffer the consequence. What's interesting this week, though, uh, Robert, is that um, you're right, the regulators, particularly in Europe, but even in the United States, are using the antitrust uh, angle mm. to try to wrangle these behemoths back to earth. And um, New Zealand has been way behind the um, curve on this one. It's really being led by the EU and the current version of the Federal Trade Commission and uh, the uh, the Biden administration's push. But what's really interesting is that Facebook, Meta this week, absolutely mm. got slaughtered on the market because mm. in a purely capitalistic point of view, Zuckerberg is losing. Well, $40 billion, they lost $40 billion. They essentially lost as much as market, of market cap as, um, as Elon has paid for Twitter. It is extraordinary. <laughs> Yeah. So, Bernard, why is the perception that Mark Zuckerberg is losing with Meta? Well, it looks like he's spent enormous sums of money trying to create this um, alternate universe where people don't have legs. Um, mm. and, uh, oh, no, but they attached video legs to the attached <laughs> fake legs. Fake legs. I mean, this is the thing. He, he's made a bet with Facebook and meta that we're all going to live in these metaverses um and frankly got it wrong secondly well he's got it wrong for the time yeah we'll see um but he's also um through the process of the last four or five years so alienated so many of his customers and his advertisers and the public at large that there's a whole bunch of people who have actually chosen to leave the platform, both advertisers mm. and people. But then, of course, there's a whole new generation of internet users, the TikTokers, so to speak, who have discovered actually this is a better thing than Facebook, and they can jump straight on it. Exactly, which is owned by ByteDance, which is based in China. Uh, yes, so yes. I reckon this is a really Bernard and I are quite happy to come down and, and give a give a lecture um, with you, Robert. Um, you know, because we're complete experts in this area. It is such an interesting area. This area of um, mm. political uh, accountability and trust between corporate and political entities. And it's more yeah. than just a discussion around um, who controls the inf information sphere. It's as mm. much about 
supply chain, financial systems, and and also um, from a purely economic point of view, the market power that some companies can get as network monopolies, both as uh, monopolies in the sense of uh, their connection with customers, but mm. also monopsonies in the way that they can uh, exercise market power over their workers, being the only employer in town. Mm. And um, I, I'm fascinated by this. And this week was a week in which the market struck back and did a lot more damage than the regulators did to the great hopes of um, Mark Zuckerberg and also Amazon, which has got absolutely massacred today as well um, because it didn't actually... Yeah, but I just bought a book on Kindle. How can it... I mean, it must have, that must have helped the share, uh, Jeff Bezos' <laughs> share price straight away. I'll, I'll put a link up to a very interesting thread from a former <laughs> Amazon executive. Peter Bale leads a surge. Yeah, yeah, with one of book, Amazon. 12 pounds 75. <laughs> and it's a book about the five eyes. May I also uh, say... Robert, that you, I would, I do urge you to pick up a copy of North and South this week, which has my um, my column about breakfast being the great New Zealand diplomatic tactic. Okay, well, I'll check that out when I'm in the supermarket tomorrow. Please do. <laughs> hey, we Did just I tell you I had a column in North and South every week, every month? <laughs> Good, um, Peter. Um, just to finish off, do you have a skateboarding dog? Well, I was only going to. I don't really, but the, the skateboarding dog story has to be the Russian one about Satanism. So the, um, this week, the uh, Assistant Secretary of the Security Council of Russia, which is um, Putin and Medvedev and a few others, said that, they, said that Ukraine has to be de-Satanized. And they've identified, uh, I think it's 150 groups that are worshipping Satan in, uh, in, the Ukraine and, in Ukraine. And so, of course, that's the motivation. It's all about Satan. Yes. Um... You do wonder about how the, the world is um, tacked to a completely different. Type. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely hanging into New Zealand at the moment, and we, yeah. I, I think we should. I think the three of us need to need to form some sort of new online university where we, you know, <laughs> talk bollocks and consider it to be entertainment and educational. Yes, um, and on that uh, note of um, stories about um, Satanism, and very good. Oh yeah, can I do? Is there? There's got to be some sort of satanic. You, some oh my oh yeah some sort okay. of satanic symbol I can do. I'd recommend to everyone a fantastic um, Netflix series out of Norway, uh, which is a really interesting sort of cross of um, the um, that Midwestern um, uh, the. What Still are the what are, what, are, what are the brothers with the, the snow-covered... Um, I've just had a mind blank. Um, uh, it'll come to me. Anyway, it's a very, very good... It's called um, uh, No One Dies in Scans. I'd highly recommend it. Oh, and good. Thank you. Yeah, I don't yeah, know the, when you find the time to do this. I just I just spend my time researching things for, for the spin-off and bloody you yes. and, and, yeah. uh, and North and South. On that note, I will put the link into the um, article that goes out with the podcast of this. Thank you very much, Robert. For Thanks, being. Robert. Have Thank a great you. weekend. Thanks very much, guys. Have a nice Thank weekend. Thank you, everybody. We're sending you the flowery shirt as we speak. And uh, everyone, have a great weekend. We'll see you all later. Let's play some jazzy music to go out. Cool. Thanks, Bernard. Thank you.